You may have noticed that I placed an explicit content warning at the beginning of this episode. I have thought about doing that for a few others in the past, but for the most part, I avoid going into graphic detail about battlefield injuries. Likewise, this week I'm not going into graphic detail about anything, but some of the topics covered will include brutal acts of racially motivated violence. Again, I'm not going into detail, but I still felt I should throw in this disclaimer. Welcome, and thank you for joining me for Ghosts of Arlington, Episode 33, From Harlem to Tuskegee, Like Father, Like Son, Part 1. After members of the 369th Infantry Regiment returned home, they and the hundreds of thousands of other African-American World War I veterans hoped that things would change, that after showing they were willing to put their lives on the line to fight for American democracy, that the democratic principles enjoyed by many in America would finally truly be expanded to all Americans. Unfortunately it was not yet to be. It is true that the wartime experiences of the 369th Regimental Band and the brief post-war career of its already famous director Jim Europe that we talked about last week opened the door for major positive steps toward full equal access for all races in the entertainment industry, but after he was tragically killed by one of his own musicians, this progress was confined for the time being to the entertainment industry. I don't mean to downplay the importance of this step in the right direction, though. It ushered in the influential Harlem Renaissance, which, for a decade, would expose mainstream America to more African-American actors, writers, musicians, artists, and designers than ever before. It produced 26 novels, 10 books of poetry, and literally hundreds of short stories, as well as five Broadway plays, a few ballets, and several classical music compositions, in addition to hundreds of hours of popular music and a large body of paintings and sculptures. In addition to introducing the public writ large to black culture, the Harlem Renaissance was also a time when black-owned businesses thrived, at least in Harlem, which became the largest African-American community in the country and possibly the largest African diaspora destination in the world. But like many of the other successes of the 1920s, the movement was greatly diminished by the onset of the Great Depression. African-American veterans who returned home to other locations in America, particularly in the South, were initially welcomed home but quickly found that attitudes hadn't changed much. And to make matters worse, Southern African-American communities were much smaller than they had been before the war, 
as many who had not gone to fight in Europe had moved to northern manufacturing cities like Chicago, Detroit, or even New York City, where well-paying work had been available. That things had not really changed became explicitly apparent in the early summer of 1919, just a few months after the Harlem Hellfighters' triumphant march down Fifth Avenue, when U.S. Marines had to be called out to put down a race riot in Charleston, South Carolina. And let me be clear, when we talk about race riots in the early 20th century and before, it almost always refers to violence perpetrated by the white community against the black community. But as we will see shortly, almost always doesn't mean always. Shortly after the riot in South Carolina, a crowd of 3,000 strong showed up in Mississippi to cheer on the lynching of a young black man who had been accused of rape but had not yet been tried for the crime. That particular event wasn't an example of mob rule. It had been carefully planned and then reported in advance by the local newspapers. It was one of 77 lynchings that took place that summer. Of those, 10 victims were Great War veterans, and a few of those were hanged while in uniform. More than 25 American communities saw race violence during the summer of 1919, including a riot that went on for two days in Washington, D.C. In Chicago, more than 1,000 black families saw their homes burned to the ground during a five-day riot that killed 38 people on both sides and injured another 537. The war hadn't changed the violence toward these communities, but it had changed the mindset of many African-American leaders in those communities. Attacks of this kind had been born with silent dignity since the end of the Civil War, and often with resignation that there was no real way to fight back. But now most, if not all, of the newly formed and forming black publications vocally denounced the actions of those perpetrating violence on the black community. One such publication, called Challenge, early on decried, quote, The German Hun is beaten, but the world is no safer for democracy. Humanity has been defended, but lifted no higher. Democracy will never be safe in America until these occurrences are made impossible whether by the proper execution of the law or with double-barrel shotguns, End quote. The Harlem Renaissance began as an antidote to the race riots during the summer of 1919. It was a race riot that officially killed the movement in 1935. A rumor spread that a black teenager had been beaten to death by white clerks in a store where he was accused of stealing a 10-cent pocket knife. The theft had occurred, but the store owner declined to press charges. Apparently, two clerks had been injured while tackling the would-be shoplifter and an ambulance came to administer some minor first aid. After the ambulance left, a hearse arrived. The driver just happened to be visiting his brother who worked at the store, but between the ambulance and hearse, rumors went wild even after the police officer who responded to the initial shoplifting call tried to explain what had really happened. That evening, 
10,000 Harlemites, apparently led by militants from the Young Communists League, rampaged through the streets, destroying $2 million of white-owned property. By morning, three rioters were dead, 30 were hospitalized, and more than 100 had been arrested. The sun had set on the Harlem Renaissance. In his book, The Hellfighters of Harlem, Bill Harris writes, The 369th Regiment of the New York National Guard, which had been instrumental in starting the ball rolling with its message of black pride, officiated over the movement's funeral. Its men were the ones called out to put down the riot that night, almost 16 years after they had marched up Lenox Avenue in triumph. There is some positive news from around this time, though. By the mid-1930s, Colonel Hayward, the original commander of the Harlem Hellfighters, finally got his wish when the 369th became the first segregated National Guard regiment to get an all-black officer corps. The first black commander of the regiment was Colonel Benjamin O. Davis, Sr. Benjamin Oliver Davis, Sr. was born in Washington, D.C. on July 1, 1877. It was during his time at M Street High School in the district that he first learned about Army life in the school's cadet program. During his senior year, he was dual enrolled at M Street and the historically black Howard University, but chose to put college on hold and enlist when the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898. His first assignment was with the 8th Cavalry Regiment, one of the famous Buffalo Soldier units, where he was made a temporary first lieutenant, but the war ended before he could be sent to fight, and he was mustered out of the army in March 1899. After the war, Davis applied for admission to the United States Military Academy, but when he was turned down, West Point had only graduated three black students in its 97-year history to that point, he decided to re-enlist as a private and was assigned to the 9th Cavalry. Davis quickly rose through the ranks and within a year was a sergeant major. That's when he met Lieutenant Charles Young, the only black officer in the Army at the time and only the third black graduate of West Point. Young taught Davis everything he needed to know to become a permanent officer and on February 2, 1901, Davis was commissioned a second lieutenant in the regular army. After his commissioning, Davis was transferred to the 10th Cav and traveled to the Philippines, where he filled various roles during the Philippine insurrection before returning stateside in 1902. In 1905, he was promoted to first lieutenant, served four years as professor of military science and tactics at Wilberforce University, an historically black university in Ohio. 
1912, he was sent to Liberia as a military attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Monrovia. He was promoted to captain in 1915, but, as we've mentioned over the last two weeks, when the U.S. entered World War I, the Army was hesitant to send African-American officers to Europe, so Davis was sent back to the Philippines where he was forced to sit out the war. After the Great War, he was promoted to lieutenant colonel and served again as professor of military science and tactics, this time at the historic Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. He held various positions throughout the 1930s after his promotion to colonel, and in 1938 he took command of the 369th, where he was the highest-ranking Hellfighter until 1941. Aside from being the first black commander in the storied regiment's history, it was also while as its commander that, in October 1940, he was promoted to brigadier general and became not only the U.S. Army's first African-American general officer, but the first flag officer in U.S. history. When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Brigadier General Davis was serving in Washington, D.C. in the office of the Inspector General. During World War II, he carried out inspection tours of African-American units, both in the United States and in Europe, where he became an advocate of the proposed policy of integrating the Army through the use of replacement soldiers replenishing units that had suffered combat losses. That policy was never implemented. After World War II, Davis was made a special assistant to the Secretary of the Army, where, among other assignments, he was able to return to Liberia as the official representative of the United States for that country's centennial celebration in July 1947. On July 20, 1948, Brigadier General Benjamin O. Davis Sr. retired after 50 years of service. His very public and well-attended retirement ceremony was presided over by President Harry S. Truman. Six days later, President Truman issued Executive Order 9981, officially abolishing racial discrimination in the United States Armed Forces. After his retirement, General Davis continued serving the uniformed service members he had spent half a century with, but this time serving those who had been killed in action as a member of the Battle Monuments Commission, an independent agency of the U.S. government that administers, operates, and maintains permanent U.S. military cemeteries, memorials, and monuments, primarily overseas. General Davis redefined what was possible for minority soldiers and was greatly mourned when he died on November 26th 1970, at 90 years old. He was buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Section 2, Grave 478-B. Before he died, he opened doors for many who came after him, including his son, Benjamin Oliver Davis, Jr. The younger Davis was inspired by his father and also chose to seek admission to the United States Military Academy. Unlike his father, by the time Davis Jr.'s application reached West Point, the Academy decided it was ready to admit another African-American cadet, and in 1936, 
He became the first black officer to graduate West Point in nearly 50 years, and only the fourth in school history. He worked hard in school and graduated 35th out of a class of 276. His fellow cadets, who were charged to live by the motto, Duty, Honor, Country, embraced this minority cadet and did everything they could to make him feel welcomed at the academy. (laughs) Just kidding. They completely failed to live up to this ideal and showed an absolute lack of leadership skills when they refused to speak to him for the entire four years he was at West Point. Davis realized he was in for a rough time when, on day one, he was given a room to himself. Every other first-year cadet was assigned one, if not two, roommates to help with adjusting to life at the military academy, studies, chores, and the various other extracurriculars that plebes were expected to do. It seems that a month after the term started, all of his fellow first-years vowed that they would only speak to Cadet Davis when duty required it. From that time on, he ate alone, exercised alone, and when the class was taken to football games or other off-campus events, he had a bus all to himself. All of this indicates that most, if not all, of the West Point military leadership had no problem with what the cadets were doing. Speaking of his West Point experience years later, he wrote, quote, West Point is supposed to train leaders, but there was no damn leadership at all. The first captain of cadets was William Westmoreland, the future U.S. commander in Vietnam. If he'd been a true leader, he would have stopped that crap. It was designed to make me buckle, but I refused to buckle. They didn't understand that I was going to stay there and I was going to graduate. I was not missing anything by not associating with them. They were missing a great deal by not associating with me. A few months after the silent treatment started, one cadet did write Davis a letter to tell him, The narrow-mindedness of some people is astounding, and I believe that this place, instead of diminishing that quality in men, increases it. After graduating in the top 15% of his class, 2nd Lieutenant Davis was sent to the Army's Infantry School at Fort Benning, Georgia, where the silent treatment not only continued for him, but was extended to his new bride, Agatha. When they made the obligatory courtesy call on the post commander, nobody answered the door, and when he tried to join the officers' club, his application was denied. Because of his stellar academic rating, Davis was entitled to choose which branch of the army he wanted to serve in, so after a short stint at Fort Benning, he chose the Air Corps. He had learned to fly during his student days, but that hardly seemed to matter. His request was denied because there weren't any black flying units and it was, quote, against army policy to assign black officers to positions where they might outrank white junior officers or give orders to white enlisted men, end quote. Instead, just as his father had, Davis was assigned to teach ROTC at the Tuskegee Institute, an assignment he considered useless. What happens to these men after they are trained, he asked. Answering his own question, he replied, They are given duties as servants in officers' quarters. They have no combat missions.
Almost 20 years after the Harlem Hellfighters had shown what African-American troops were capable of on the battlefield if given the chance, black soldiers were still considered unfit for combat. In the years following World War I, the military conducted endless and blatantly biased studies that seemed to back up the idea that African-American soldiers were only qualified for menial labor jobs performed under close supervision. One such study conducted in 1925 by the U.S. Army War College concluded that, quote, Blacks are mentally inferior, by nature subservient, and cowards in the face of danger. They are therefore unfit for combat, end quote. These same studies were used to deny black officers the opportunity to fly completely ignoring the dozens of black men and women pioneers from the early days of American aviation. But things started to change in 1939 when, after World War II broke out in Europe, the Civil Aeronautics Administration, the precursor to today's Federal Aviation Administration, began a civilian pilot training program designed to produce qualified pilots who could be called up for military or other service in case of a national emergency. The program was initially only offered at all-white universities, so African-American aviation pioneer Chauncey Spencer and fellow activist Edgar Brown flew from Chicago to Washington, D.C. to lobby the Military Appropriations Committee to expand the program to include black students as well. The first lawmaker these two encountered was Missouri Senator Harry Truman, who pledged to support their efforts and convinced the committee to expand the program to include six black colleges. Two years later, in 1941, the Army Air Corps agreed to recruit black graduates of this program into the newly formed 99th Pursuit Squadron. When Chief of the Army Air Corps, General Hap Arnold, signed off on the experimental squadron, he told his superiors that he thought the experiment would fail and that it would take at least 10 years to train black pilots to be, quote-unquote, real aviators. It wouldn't take long for the 99th to prove their detractors wrong, but they would have to overcome some major obstacles first. The squadron's headquarters was established in Alabama at the Tuskegee Institute, but before it could get up and running, it needed a commander, a commander who was already a qualified pilot. That's when someone remembered Benjamin O. Davis Jr., and just like that, the young captain became the first Tuskegee Airman. I think this is a good place to pause this week. Next week, we will continue the story of Benjamin Davis Jr. and the Tuskegee Airmen, a story that ends with a twist nobody saw coming at the time, the full integration of the United States military. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are photographs and additional information about every episode on the website www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. Ghosts of Arlington is also on Facebook and Twitter, and links to those sites are in the show notes. As always, I encourage you to leave a review and 5-star rating on iTunes or wherever you stream the show, 
as that helps others find the podcast. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.